Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Fulta. I'm the professor and a podcast host and someone who thinks about science communication and how we can do it more effectively, bringing the latest breakthroughs to everybody out there. And and really, COVID-19 has been on the tip of everyone's tongue for at least a year. And we've seen a lot of things happen in the last year, a lot of different changes, a lot of different ideas. We've hosted a number of different podcasts on on that topic here, a number of different topics. And today we're going to talk a little bit about COVID-19 and testing and some of the molecular basis of testing and some of the things that are being done around testing and molecular analysis of COVID-19 and other diseases. And so we're speaking with Joe Bakhti. He's the founder and CEO of QuantGene, and we'll talk about COVID-19 testing. Well, welcome to the podcast, Joe. Great to be here, Kevin. Yeah, well, it's really nice to have you on because I found your website. I was reading about QuantGene, and it really does make a lot of sense what's happening right now uh, and and your concepts that are there seem to be really applicable to this pandemic. But let's start out by talking about that pandemic and the role of testing. How critical is widespread testing to control the spread of any pandemic? Well, it's um, I think it's the absolute centerpiece and foundation to get a hold of uh, any pandemic um, or endemic at some point, because uh, the first thing you need to know in order to take any intelligent action is you need to have the data. And if you don't know who has COVID or any other dangerous disease that is spreading fast, then you can't take action. You need to know who has it, how fast does it spread, where does it spread. And uh, it's not a big secret why this is important. Otherwise, you can't make informed scientific um, decisions. And what COVID revealed is how weak Uh, or backwards our system was in the beginning of the pandemic on that very basic level to understand how do we test people, how do we test a lot of people. And what we found at QuantGene, when we built, I would argue, the most advanced COVID testing system in the nation now in terms of turnaround times, is that you need to introduce a uh, a whole batch of new technologies into laboratory science to, to, you know, keep up with that. Um, especially cloud and AI systems, which are normally not on, on, on the table when it comes to biotech. Um, and these are very important because you need a critical speed and precision in mass testing. And that is what QuantChain kind of reinvented. We have the most advanced cloud system in COVID testing that is connected to our labs. And this is why we can deliver same-day turnaround times for advanced PCR tests uh, all the time. 99% of time, you deliver in less than 12 hours. Um, And I think these were capabilities that just didn't exist. And COVID made that pressure, dialed up the pressure, and drove innovation. Um, 
you know, allowed companies like ours to, to really show what is actually possible. And these new advancements are now much more high profile and, and disseminate throughout medicine faster because of COVID. So there's a good, you know, that something good came out of it. Yeah, that it's true. But what's really funny about this to me, or really interesting, not so much funny. What's really interesting about this is it seems so obvious in retrospect. And how did we not know that testing would be the, the cornerstone of containing anything, you know, especially after we've been through, you know, um, MERS and SARS? Well, it's uh, knowledge is not enough. The question is who knows what and who takes action on what. And our challenge in healthcare is that, you know, the, the system is built not from, you know, there's, there's no higher like uh, rationale behind the system. It's a very evolutionary system where big players have their grip on certain things and their incentives are not aligned with what's good for people, for you and your family. And it's also not aligned to what's good for the nation in terms of efficient response. It is aligned to a very convoluted payer system uh, and, and making maximum profit of a not free market system, which creates enormous distortions. So knowledge is not enough. Uh, you need incentive structures. You need entrepreneurs who break through these structures and create something that's actually aligned to what industry, government, and individuals actually need. You know, one of the places where maybe the biggest failure in, in the current system has taken has been revealed. Um, look at Los Angeles, and I know uh, looking at your website, there's a presence in California, and that's been through really very strict lockdowns and limitations at least if not lockdowns why do numbers keep rising there that is a very good question because uh you know you see this weird um dichotomy that states that have much more lax um, shutdown rules actually have lower spread rates and um i think uh, there's this disconnect in general that you know some people believe the government has to control everything and put a lot of rules in place and others believe maybe it's more up how people behave and taking responsibility for themselves. And I think the interesting thing is, you know, here in California, you often have a lot of lots of rules, uh, many more rules than the average state in the United States. Um, but the compliance of to all these rules and to, you know, common sense things is much lower. So, you know, the response is then to increase even to, to put in even tougher rules and decrease compliance even more. Right. So, I mean, you saw it with all the there was were lots of demonstrations last year here, mass demonstrations with no social distancing and all these things. And uh, then people said, that's OK. And I understand the politics behind it. And you can argue either way. But uh, from a medical point of view, of course, that that's a problem. Then you have a lot of, you know, underground partying going on here where people just ignore everything. So, you know, the funny thing is the shutdowns are much tougher here than let's say in Texas or Florida. But then when you look what people actually do every day and how, how smart they deal with a pandemic, where a common sense approach is, well, let's just be a little cautious, wash my hands a little bit more and maybe not hug everyone all the time. Um, I think the compliance is actually higher in, in these states. So I think, you know, in, in the end, it comes down to having common sense and, and understand what population is going to behave what way. And, you know, on the surface, all these 
you know, if you just impose crazy shutdowns and people just don't like it at some point or just do other stuff, then you will see these effects. Well, the one thing that all of this has really revealed to me is the importance of testing that has to go hand in hand with any kind of you know, either request for um, you know compliance with restrictions or just you know generally day to day living uh, in the presence of a pandemic. How important uh, testing is, and so how bad are the current limitations in the existing testing strategy? We have very interesting comparisons here because we test because we are kind of a high performance uh, testing system. We um, we are most requested in in the movie industry, which has probably the toughest constraints right now by the unions. They have to test every day and they have to shut down the next day if there's anything found or someone does not get tested. So they have to be on top of their game. And that's what we deliver um, at a pretty reasonable price point. But the price is like, you know, we charge like 20, 30% more than the cheapest test providers out there. And what we see is in public testing, you know, it's very price driven and not very performance driven, right? There's another problem. So if, if we sell a test, including collection for like $105 and someone else sells it for 70, government is gonna to go to the $70 people, but then they uh, they need 72 hours or more to actually deliver the results, which defies the purpose. And then then you have spread because yeah, the, the person is positive, but you didn't get the results in time, but then that's not a metric they're looking for. And there you have the problem. It's very hard to tell how to fix the problem, but it's always a lack of just common sense and rational planning, right? If you tell tell someone, okay, just opt, find the cheapest tests out there, you're just missing a variable. You're missing the variable, what about turnaround time? What about quality of test? And um, if you miss out on those, then your testing matrix becomes very uh, problematic because it's unreliable. So I think there are these are kind of reasons why the whole thing was a problem. Another, I think the biggest problem is in the beginning of the pandemic, people confused a lot of numbers, including the CDC, uh, which is astounding to me. Um, you know, the difference between how much COVID exists objectively in the population, uh, how much COVID you detect because you test, that you actually detect more if you test more. Like to this day, I don't understand what's so difficult to get there. I mean, that's kind of a logical thing. So in the beginning, you know, the cases, the COVID cases shot up like crazy because we, the testing went up like crazy. And, you know, you have to anticipate what happens. What is the growth rate of testing versus the growth rate of COVID? And are they totally correlated because it implies there is actually not a great growth rate? Or do they actually show, you know, COVID increasing and all these things? And you see that in the official statistic that COVID cases were jumping like crazy in California. And the reason behind that is that the... Um, the CalReady system actually broke down so no one could report for a week and then COVID was totally down. But of course, COVID wasn't down. The testing reporting was down. And so, you know, all these things sound like a little crazy that they are problems, but in the end, you need to design systems that work. And if you have flaws in the design, you will have massive effects on the reporting and then massive effects on the perception of what's happening and then wrong decisions are being taken. No, I totally understand that. And but this is what's the problem. It's really a detection issue. And the place that they were able to figure this out was within the White House and within the government itself where people were being tested every single day because that was the key to avoiding the spread and, and to detecting it early. 
So why is it that they were able to figure this out in some aspects of government, but were unable to apply that to the population in general? These are uh, these are very deep questions, Kevin. That's uh, these are kind of administrative and government and political questions, right? Why is it so uh, messed up, and why is it so different from state to state? And the answer, of course, lies in the people in charge. Like some people in charge know what they're doing, and some don't. And um, you know, I mean, I know a lot of medical professionals here uh, and a lot of people in my company who knew what to do, but we were not in charge of making these decisions. So, okay, how could we get to the people in charge who make these decisions? Well, we had no real path. So, you know, I think in the end, these are not hard problems. Like people who understand them can solve them very easily, but these people were not in charge and they were not listened to. I think it's kind of as simple as that. I mean, normally, I mean, there are also many other countries like South Korea, for example, where they had a very clear testing strategy. You can't test the entire population. So why don't you start testing the pockets where COVID actually occurs and uh, the segments of the population that are most likely to be exposed to COVID and focus your efforts there and then make sure you're doing a really good job there and, and choose the best testing solution that delivers speed, quality and on price. I mean, then you wouldn't have any problems. Now, it really resonates because for me, I have to be tested in order to continue to do my job at work, in order to be on university. And so every two weeks I go spit in the tube and then a few days later find out I'm not COVID positive. But is this or is this not effective really in protecting a broader population? I think it can only be effective and that's plays to the strength of what we are trying to do here at Quanchin, um, the idea in biotech on medicine that you just have these medical devices or tests and that they solve the problem is just fundamentally wrong. Same for cancer detection, what we're doing in genomics. Um, this needs to be paired with very advanced data and intelligence systems that go beyond your test and that go into, you know, in cancer detection into your your more holistic family history and all the other risk factors. And in COVID, go into epidemiology and the pockets of people and the types of people and their risk profiles. And so, uh, you know, the, the math behind these things and the statistics are extremely important to have an intelligent system that applies your biotechnologies uh, in a targeted way. And these systems are just underappreciated. They it's kind of, you know, in a war, if you have great weapons, right, you have a great bomb, like that bomb is not very helpful if you don't have a guiding system to guide the bomb where it actually should hit. Now, that's a little morbid example, but I just, it's easy to understand, right? So if, if, if one, one country has like weaker bombs, but much better guiding systems and intelligence systems, and the others have stronger bombs, the one with the weaker bombs is going to win very easily. And same is true in medicine and biotech. Like the biotech is one piece, but the intelligence is a more important piece. How do you deploy it when um, and for what reason? And I think we see that more and more, that we're using more of a um, data-driven, machine learning kind of environment that's happening more and more. But let's go backwards to the other side of that. And this is something that, that this audience has been very interested in. What are the kinds of tests that are available and what do they really tell you? That is an excellent question. So we have 
basically three types of tests to make it very simple. We have PCR tests who look for the RNA of the virus. Uh, we have antigen tests that look for the proteins or antigens um, that the virus carries. And then we have antibody tests that check your own antibody's immune system if it has built up resistance to COVID. And these three types of tests have very different you know, purposes and profiles. So the PCR tests are by many, many magnitudes more sensitive. So they can basically pick up down to 10 molecules of RNA um, because they work through amplification. So these things are super tiny and no one can see them. But what these PCR tests do, they amplify it. That's why it's called polymerase chain reaction because there's an exponential amplification of viral material, genomic material. And so these PCR tests are very good for early detection, like with very small amounts of virus. That's why they are much more reliable in detecting the presence of COVID than antigen tests, like vastly more reliable. Yeah, and just to clarify for the audience who may not be familiar, you know, that's the technique they use in forensics to be able to find, say, the uh, uh, the criminal that was at a crime scene by analyzing a cigarette butt or the uh, or the uh, maybe a and the end of a human hair. You know, so that's the kind of thing that they can understand by using a technique like PCR. It's extremely extremely sensitive because it can amplify very small amounts. So really, your company has taken this opportunity to really increase the throughput and availability of testing. And so what are some of the ways you've managed to incorporate these other types of data or other processes to increase the turnaround and throughput of the process? Yeah, that goes into a third angle here. Um, that is a purely kind of cloud operational data processing angle. So if you run a PCR test, the PCR test takes like 70 minutes roughly and plus 30 minutes preparation. So again, you can get it done in 90 minutes, but that requires the lab personnel to get your test, to know your Kevin, you know, write it on the tube, put it into the preparation and then run the test and you stand maybe next to them and then they tell you, okay, Kevin, here's your result. That's not how it really works, right? Because in reality, you're not standing in the lab, you're one of 10,000 people who need to get tested that day. Uh, someone has to collect all these samples, mark them, put labels on it, send them to the lab. The lab has then to accession uh, these samples and understand who was that again and where's the data and where's the paperwork for each of these people. Then you need to run all these tests and you have to run them on these plates. And when you put prepare them on the plates, you need to still understand who, which well on the plate belongs to what person. Then when you're done, you have to somehow contact all these people or their providers and tell them exactly who's who and what was happening. And if you ever confuse a sample, you have kind of a problem uh, because you're telling them the wrong results from the wrong people. So you would think that can't be a problem in an advanced healthcare system. Um, but it's one of these things that, you know, someone has to solve that problem. And the way it's being solved right now before quarantine, it's it's shocking, but it's true that it was mostly manual. You, if you get 10,000 tubes and someone was sitting there with a pen and starting to write down the names, opening your sheet of paper and comparing the tube number with the paper number where it has all your medical information on, that process alone took like two, three minutes per sample. So we, we brought that uh, time per sample down to zero seconds. 
because it's in the cloud. It's and the wonderful breakthroughs that can contribute you know, to public health. Closer to zero seconds than to one second, much closer, for example. So to fully automate this stuff and identify the patient at the intake before the nurse even swaps your sample, have that in a cloud and have that fully integrated in the lab and have the entire laboratory process and the identification in every laboratory process step already identified with the patient information, rebuild this whole system. We had that system partially done for the genetics side of things. And um, in the beginning, in April 2020, I had no idea what the other labs were doing. I, I thought like, whatever, I'm sure they have something. And then we saw LabCorp, Quest, and the largest labs in the nation. We had the opportunity to see some of their stuff, and it was completely shocking. I mean, it was just not happening. And that is why you had these crazy delays of three, four weeks in the beginning. And to this day, it takes them you know, 72 hours you know, at scale. And for us, you know, we deliver, we collect and deliver back to everyone always in less than 12 hours. So, you know, in the end, all these things need to be engineered. Someone has to just think it through and make sure the whole system works and, you know, be diligent and make this super robust and design intelligent systems. And, you know, I, I think one of the big, biggest misconceptions is that our healthcare system is super advanced and smart. Like, Every time you dig into the healthcare system from any angle, after you dig through the initial surface layer behind the scenes, what's the data flows, what's the intelligence behind it, it is always completely shocking, like always. I've never met an instance in oncology, in the pandemic, in clinical algorithms and processes where I wasn't shocked by what I've seen, even in the most advanced institutions. That's really amazing because it, we were trying to solve a 2021 problem really with a 1970s strategy of writing on a piece of paper and, and shipping it off with the tube. And you know the, the thing that really impressed me about QuantGene and the approach that you've taken is that whole throughput, but also uh, how it's implemented. And can you give me a little bit of a sense that, like say I was a business that had you know a thousand employees and I wanted to ensure that we didn't have this circulating in our you know, in, within the walls of the company, uh, you know, how could I call you and have some sort of strategy implemented fast that would allow me to clear employees? It's very easy. You go on our website, drop us an email, say, here's my company. We need help. We have this many employees at these locations. Uh, what's the plan? And then we basically come back to you very quickly and ask you, okay, what's, how much money can you spend on that, on keeping everyone safe? And then we work from that budget and say, okay, how frequently can we test? How much safety do we generate if it's twice a week? You know, maybe you test your whole workforce uh, that needs to go back to the office um, twice a week. That gives you a huge amount of safety, added safety. And then, you know, you can we help you optimize also who should go back to optimize costs. Maybe not everyone needs to go back. In the end, it's a cost question. Um, and then from there, I mean, the question is, can you afford you know, $200 per person per week. Um, so that's roughly 800 a month. Um, and then you would have for $800 a month per person, you're getting a tremendous level of safety. Um, and the question is, can you afford that? Or for whom do you want to afford it? And often, you know, when you talk about traders uh, in, in financial institutions, R&D staff, uh, so people who make over 200K, like this is not a problem. Um, but if you, you know, or, or absolutely essential workers in manufacturing, 
without them, you know, your entire system would come to a standstill. So, you know, many employers actually have, they think this is actually a low number. Other employers will think it's a very high number. So in the end, it's, it becomes a, a money, like an expense or cost question. Like, what is it worth for you to have a safe workforce back in the office? What is it worth having, you know, on the liability and legal side to have a system place that no one can really contest in terms of your responsibility? And, and that's kind of the main question. The solution is pretty straightforward and we, we have it. That's a really good point. How, how, how scalable is it that if we, let's just say, had, uh, you know, COVID-21 pop up? that you could very rapidly implement this kind of thing across an entire nation. And the reason I ask is because, you know, you say $200 a sample, but the, you know, Congress is, well, Congress has been cutting checks for 600, $1,400 a person, you know, just to give a little bit of needed relief to people who are, um, who are going through economic hardship, let alone all the businesses that have gone under. So is this something that could be scalable very rapidly using a similar approach? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is just, you know, we have mobile laboratory technology now. We have deployed, I think, six mobile laboratories right now with movie productions all over the country. Um, we we have super high throughput labs that are mobile, you know, and these things can be manufactured at scale, you know, within four weeks or something at this point. Um, and we have the supply chain down. So, you know, if you had to do a million or two million or four million tests a month, that's all no problem if it's if it's planned, you know, we, if necessary, this thing could be ramped up very quickly. It's all about the question, like make this known to people, break through the cronyism a little bit. There's a reason why LabCorp and Quest got all the contract. And then it was a giant disaster um, because they lost tens of thousands of samples and they delayed it by 72 hours. And so there were weeks sometimes. And there were other labs, not just Quantine, there were other labs that are vastly outperforming these, but they didn't have the access, uh, government access. So, you know, I think if there would be rational decisions and people really wanted a solution that is price effective, scalable and super fast because it's cloud and AI enabled, this is no problem. This problem has been solved. Well, we're speaking with Joe Bakti. He's the founder and CEO of Quantine. And we're talking about how you can ramp up COVID testing and what does the next generation of testing solutions look like in the event of a rapid scale up for the next pandemic or potentially issues associated with personalized medicine. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast and we'll be back in just a moment. It was over eight years ago that three lumpy rats the world. You might remember the famous paper by Theralini et al. where it claimed that rats fed GE corn or the herbicide Roundup had a high incidence of grotesque tumors. They looked like tube socks stuffed with ping pong balls. Scientists immediately jumped on the work, criticizing it, citing that it mainly appeared staged, that the numbers were too small, and that the rat model used was designed to grow tumors in that time frame. In the subsequent eight years, nobody has reproduced those data. Four very well-funded and conducted experiments refuted the shocking 2012 paper. But that image has become part of the myth 
The paper shut down those use of GE crops in food insecure nations like Kenya and scared the bejesus out of affluent white people in the U.S. and EU. The lumpy rats became an icon of the dangers of technology, despite the fact there was no danger. Disinformation has consequences. Use this podcast to arm yourself against bad information. Share the science. Engage. Tell the truth. We have a moral obligation to stand up for those who can benefit from technology. And all must do our part to fight the deliberate, intentional, false information, especially during a global pandemic. Now back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Joe Bakke. He's the founder and CEO of Quanchi. And we're speaking originally about COVID-19 and how COVID-19 could have been changed dramatically, at least the penetrance of the disease, with scaled-up testing. And maybe some of the things we've learned from COVID-19 that can be applied going forward. And, you know, I guess, you know, when we talk about what Quanchin has done and how you've changed your strategies to be able to deliver fast and uh, reliable testing, how has COVID-19 really been kind of a, maybe a silver lining to other aspects of personalized medicine? Like what other kind of testing can be done in a really fast way, perhaps to be able to predict or anticipate other types of disease presentations. Yeah, I think I'm always, of course, COVID for quarantine was an enormous opportunity, even though it was a great tragedy for, for the whole world. But for us, it was a tremendous opportunity within that tragedy to demonstrate what that new intersection of cloud systems, AI and biotech can do, that we can change the paradigm of COVID testing and the efficiency and precision of COVID testing as a population solution or enterprise solution, not by, you know, 20, 30%, but by thousands of times. And um, as I explained, you know, previously, you know, instead of taking two, three minutes per sample or weeks for 10,000 samples, we can do it in less than a second um, on the data management side. So it's not a small improvement, it's a complete disruption of how things work. And um, in a way, in an abstract mathematic way, it's actually very similar what we do in genomics and cancer detection. Um, it's a very different angle on things, but the paradigm is the same. In COVID, you know, we deployed the power of our cloud, of the Serenity cloud systems and AI systems in a way that allowed us to do tens of thousands of samples, basically with milliseconds of computation in terms of data arrangement, reporting back, accessioning and organizing the data, which cut the turnaround time from, you know, weeks to hours for large batches. And in genomics, um, we do the same thing, only not on the number of samples. It's just one sample here, um, but on the number of nucleotides and genomic locations we are investigating. And I always give this example. When we deploy our cancer detection system with trained physicians, um, it's a blood draw. And it detects, you know, up to 15 different cancers at early stages or helps trained physicians to detect it if they understand how to use the system. And 
why this is possible is because we push the boundaries of sequencing, genomic sequencing, to an entirely new dimension in terms of precision. We now are at a point where we have single molecule precision validated and, and published that we can show if you have a single molecule, a single fragment of DNA that carries a cancer-associated mutation, that we have a high probability of actually finding that, which is dramatically more accurate than, than anything previously. And to give you an example what how to make these things possible and what is required, if we get a blood sample from a person, from a patient, and we run our system, we are getting roughly 10 billion data points out of that. So we need a cloud system that can digest 10 billion genomic data points and translate them into interpretations of mutations. If you go to your doctor and you do a PSA test to detect prostate cancer, for example, an old school PSA test that looks for proteins, prostate-specific antigens, that test gives you one data point. All it does when you look at the lab it looks, it gives you one data point. It gives you what is your PSA level, and it's like four. I mean, hopefully not, but maybe it's 0 0.8. Um, we get 10 billion. That's the difference. And that just shows you this is not a small little step. You know, you, you can't give, you, you can't print 10 billion nucleotide reads out on paper and give it to a physician. You need a vast cloud system that is very intelligent how it does this processing and how to interpret these 10 billion individual digital reads into, okay, do we have a problem or not? And you also need a lot of artificial intelligence for that. I just use these numbers to showcase how medicine is dramatically changing, not incrementally changing, but dramatically changing, and how medicine turns from a analog kind of experience-based science into a very, very deep data science with very advanced cloud and very advanced artificial intelligence required and new jobs, like you know medical intelligence officers, as we call them, uh, people who understand vast data arrays from patients and understand what they might mean. No, I love this stuff. And I, I, have, a, I have a million questions for you on this, but one distinction I'd like to make for the audience is, you know, your PSA test is a reactive test you're testing to see if an antigen is elevated in response to some sort of a neoplastic condition inside the prostate. Whereas the genomic sequencing side and analyzing genome sequence is kind of, well, is predictive potentially based upon alleles that associate with um, a higher likelihood of a cell becoming neoplastic or, or, or developing some sort of a, let's just say cancer or other condition in a given cell. But you said, you know, 10 billion data points that really would be sequencing a human genome with 3x coverage, you know, three times coverage. How do you really uh, know that the alleles that are there are truly associated with the onset or potentially predictability or prediction of a specific type of disorder? Yeah, these are great questions, Kevin. So just to um, illuminate the two things we are doing here on the genomic side. We have two test systems. One is a whole exome uh, test system where we look at the exome, 30 million nucleotides, 20,000 genes. So we look at your entire genetic material and look at 100x steps at that. Um, so you can do the math. It's roughly 3 billion data points that come out of that. That That is something that gives us 
your risk predispositions and all kinds of additional information. Do you have incompatibilities with certain drug combinations? Um, you know, do you have lower or higher metabolism for certain prescription drugs, which has a direct impact on side effects and dosage? But also on the disease side, do you have elevated risk for breast, breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer? Do you have elevated risk for cardiovascular events or, or lower risk? That is one part of our system. Now, this part is very important for prediction over your lifetime and your lifetime risk, which has a direct impact on you know, your preventative care action plans. Then we have a second part that does something different um, that I mentioned before. And that system takes a blood sample and investigates every single fragment of cell-free DNA in your blood. And cell-free DNA is DNA that has been shed into your blood by cells that die, including tumor cells that die at a higher rate. And what we do here is we are looking for specific mutations on these DNA fragments that are associated with cancer. And that is actually an early detection, not a prediction um, device. It allows us to see if you currently have any 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 uh, neoplasma uh, plastic thing going on, if you have any early or pre-tumor going on, because we can literally tell if there was any cell in your body that looks genetically like a tumor cell, that looks different from your healthy cells. And the combination of these two very advanced new genomic systems becomes pretty effective in giving you an added layer of cancer protection. Okay. Now I understand that a lot better. That makes a lot more sense because things like colon cancer take five committed steps, five that are well-described, five different genetic events that take place before something becomes metastatic and, and really problematic, exactly. which, is, which, is, which is why that early detection is so important. But could you detect something like that in a blood draw? Yes. That is the, it is a, in the end, it's a math problem, right? If you have a early stage, a stage one colon cancer or any kind of bladder tumor, the interesting thing is a stage one tumor is nearly impossible to detect in most imaging systems. If you do an MRI on the bladder or even a CT, it's you're probably not going to see it because that thing might be you know, smaller than a centimeter. So it might not even occur on any imaging tool. But even a centimeter big tumor is, you know, has around 200 million cells. And what our technology does, it, it dials up the, the precision of detection down to a single cell kind of, or a single fragment of DNA. And that means of these 200 million cells in your very early stage, nearly impossible to detect two more through imaging. You know, if, if that thing has a turnover of even 5% of its cells per day, you are talking about, you know, 10 million cells that are being turned over, like that die and shed their content into your blood. And then you have 10 million DNAs circulating in your blood that carry the mutations of that tumor. And we take roughly 0.2% of your blood, you know, when we take a blood draw or 0.4% if you take two tubes. So that's small, but 0.4% of 10 million is still a lot of stuff. And of course, it's not that easy. A lot of these things get filtered out in liver and kidneys and DNA. So you have a massive loss of material, of course, very quickly. And you're shedding these 10 million over 24 hours. And, you know, the half-life of these things is probably one hour. 
So if you do the math on that, you still arrive at a point where even at the earliest stage, you very likely have 10 copies or something of DNA in a blood sample at earliest stages. And so it's all about can, can you push sequencing technology to a point where if you have 10 copies in a blood sample that you could find them, which was completely impossible three years ago. So, you know, I mean, completely impossible. So we needed to invent a lot of things and we started inventing them previous two, three years because it takes a while, but we knew sequencing is getting to that point in terms of costs um, that we now can do that. And that is kind of the math behind, that's why liquid biopsy, as it's called, is so hot because people know in the next 10 years there will be a massive transformation in cancer because this is unstoppable. Um, people project it's going to be very feasible and broadly applied within the next five years. And Quantine just has won the race so far. So we actually start launching this this year in a first version. And some competitors have already employed it in oncology where it's easier because it's late stage cancers. So There's much more material. And um, this is a true transformation because you know, a PSA test, you need millions, many millions of proteins or antigens in a blood sample to see any kind of delta, any kind of difference. Um, not one. If you have one, it's like a total joke. You're off by so many magnitudes before you can see anything. And we are down to a single molecule. And that is very, very important for early detection. This is really incredible. So really what you're telling me, well, maybe what you could tell me is uh, if I, if I were to schedule a, an appointment with my physician, say in 2025, is this a kind of time frame where I may go for a blood draw before I ever even make that appointment and bring those data with me to go talk to with my physician? How close are we to this? It depends on your physician. If you have our physicians, it's 2021, not 2025. So that's, you know, that's what we are launching this year. And we will, you know, we project that we probably have uh, probably 50 physicians end of this year who know how to do this um, and go hopefully very exponential from there because it's extremely important um, to get this to more people. And while we are getting it to more people, this is also a system that evolves very rapidly in terms of its quality and precision. So when we start, we will have, I think, if I'm totally honest on the performance, like it looks very good, but if I'm conservative, I think we will in the beginning be at, we have to dial up specificity to make sure very little false positives. I think we are going to start with 20, 30% for on the low end and 50% maybe on the high end of detection. So we will miss half of the cancers or a little a bit more. But for most of these cancers, you have no alternative, right? You and then we will this this performance will go up very very quickly uh, and hit like 60 70 percent I think in the next two years, which is incredible. So you would basically detect 70 out of 100 within the next two years, and that is absolutely life uh, saving. We know that early detection. No, so you know it's all about now taking the first step to being the pioneers here and actually deploy that with a physician network and trained physicians. Um, learn very quickly and expand it quickly and then bring it to as many people as possible. Well, I guess I find that a little bit surprising in that, you know, you're trying to teach an old dog new tricks, right? You're taking physicians that were trained in, a, in an existing framework and an existing training system to take on this new 
technology or understanding and interpretations of a new tool for diagnosis or detection. And doesn't it maybe even make more sense to have this as, you know, maybe an outpatient network of, of uh, like, like, a, like you go get your car's oil changed. You go into a place and they pull some blood and they do this independent of the existing physicians and just use a whole team of specialized computational experts to give you predictive numbers that then you can take to whoever your provider is. Well, it's the solution we are building is kind of a blend, right? You always have the core. You need a significant core team behind the scenes on our side to do all these things. But for compliance reasons, you need physicians who then tie in other medical data to make the final, draw the final conclusions. And I think the reality will be that a new type of physician is emerging that still is a medical expert, but is also highly trained and, and familiar with what we are doing. And, you know, I always, or my chief medical officer, she came up with this beautiful curve, which is very well known in consumer goods, or the adoption curve, where you have innovate, 2% are innovators, 13% are early adopters, then you have mainstream, and then you have the laggards. So if you have the latest gadget from Apple or something, 2% want it right away. The other 13 want it after these two very quickly. And then you have a lag and a gap before the mainstream kicks in. And then you have 30 40% who just hate it all the time. And the funny thing is in medicine, it's the same thing on a physician level, right? Not all physicians are the same. Not all primary care physicians are the same. They actually fall exactly in that curve. If you give me the 2% most innovative, progressive uh, primary care docs in America, they are on top of their game. They know machine learning. They know genetics. They want this kind of thing. They want to be trained. They want to talk to our specialists. The next 13% or so are interested, are curious, they're not taking the lead, but once the 2% have it, they say like, oh, I also want to be part of this. And then you have a giant gap. Then come the haters who say like everything is stupid, that's not old school. And then once you get them, you have the laggards who will hate you, to, uh, you know, forever. So that's how we view the market and our partnerships. And that's exactly what we see. Some physicians just hate whatever is new and other physicians are absolutely on top of their game. And you have to go with the ones who understand innovation and like data. Well, can you give me some idea of practical application of this? And, you know, in our listener audience, absolutely, there will be people whose families have a history of different cancers. And are there particularly specific cancer types that would be more likely to be detected favorably by your methods that someone who say has a family history of cancer X may find this uh, really an attractive uh, approach to begin to pursue. So I think in terms of segmentation of patients who are interested in that, you have basically two different segments. One segment is that, you know, everyone who just wants to be ahead of their time and on top of their game, who's willing to spend more money to, to just make absolutely sure they get the best in preventative care. That is one mindset that is very important for us. And often these are like, you know, Google engineers, Tesla engineers, like, or docs themselves or biohackers, like this crowd of sophisticated patients who understand data and understand medicine. They want their own family be protected like that. The other segment is people who have you know, deeper reasons to be really concerned about cancer. They have cancer in the family. Maybe they have BRCA or they have other genetic 
uh, conditions that make them very exposed, but they also fall in the first category. So they understand that and they want to take action. Or they are people, um, patients who went through cancer are in remission and are very concerned and comes back. That's also a huge, very important application. And um, so I think the typical case here, when you talk about which cancers, you know, when, when it comes to all these different cancer types, um, all I can tell you is how, where we are at on clinical evidence generation. And, you know, we are pretty far ahead now on eight cancer types and we see different performance. We, we see, for example, in bladder cancer, very strong prostate cancer, very strong. Um, in uh, colon cancer, right now it looks a little weak. It's still good, like 30% or something detection performance in the latest batch. We think that gets better when we get more samples in. Um, but bladder, for example, close to 80% for early stage detection. Um, these are all just preliminary numbers based on a certain cohort study we are doing. Uh, breast cancer is always a challenge. So breast cancer is actually harder to detect in the blood because it's a lot of fat tissue in the breast. So the dissemination is a little worse. Um, pancreatic cancer, very strong. Liver cancer, very strong, probably because they're very close to the blood. Uh, gastric cancer, decent performance. And we will get more data in, in the next three months on ovarian uh, lung cancer, also pretty good. Um, so I think colon and breast are weaker, weaker than we like, but still much better than most alternatives. Uh, liver, prostate, bladder, pancreatic, lung, pretty good. Um, and we're getting leukemia, lymphoma, the liquid cancers. I think we will have better understanding of the performance very soon. And it's an ongoing thing. I mean, we are continuously expanding our clinical trials. We have a 10,000 patient trial going on, ongoing and process more and more of these samples. Um, and commercial samples will be combined if the patients agree to research. And I think it's, it's really super exciting because these numbers advance constantly. The more we train the system, the better it becomes. And that happens week by week right now. I guess the last thing I really think about is applicability and how this would work within a existing healthcare system. And you know, kind of hinted the idea that this would be something that someone who could afford to find out if they had a predisposition or an active case that was just starting. But in a larger context, isn't it really less expensive for this to be implemented, say, at a government level? to detect it early in everybody, regardless of social economic status, to be able to really save tremendous costs to a healthcare system where cancer is cancer treatment is an increasing burden in terms of cost. Yeah, absolutely. I think you totally nailed it, Kevin. It's a total no-brainer. From a common sense perspective, it's a total no-brainer that early detection will save money, even if it costs you $1,500 or something per year per person. If you shift uh, from late stage to early stage treatment, you're talking about, you know, instead of $400,000 per patient, you're spending 30000 for surgery, local radiation, you're out of the hospital and in remission within two weeks, in many cases, for early stage. And for late stage, you know what happens. This is like a five-year journey of chemotherapy um, that often ends in, in death. So you are absolutely right from a common sense perspective. Um, which makes me very hopeful that, you know, Medicare and other uh, insurance uh, systems will reimburse this at some point. Unfortunately, I'm also extremely familiar with how everything works on their side. And it's not common sense driven. That's I can tell you that. So 
you can't make these math examples. They are not just not going to listen. What they want is evidence. Um, and unfortunately, with evidence, they mean you have to prove it with exactly your system uh, that you save money in the long term. And you can argue all day long and show them all, all adjacent studies and all outcomes and early detection, how it moves the needle. They say like, well, but it's not your early detection. It's other people's early detection. Who knows if you detected early, if the outcomes are the same, maybe you detect different things early and so on. Uh, this ends up being billions, many billions of dollars you have to spend on clinical trials because uh, you need hundreds of thousands of cohorts uh, of patient cohorts. You have to follow them for 10, 15 years, and that's going to cost billions um, before you can even apply. And that's, uh, I think the real reason behind that is that it doesn't matter how much money you save in the future. It doesn't really matter how many, how many lives you can save. It's a pure budget problem. And, you know, the last thing that Medicare wants right now is more expenses now, even if they, if they save money, you always have to, I think it's important to understand for everyone that, you know, there is no system and there are no in, insurance companies or government entities. Everything is just people and people have jobs and they get promoted or they get fired. And that's how the world works. And if you are the head of Medicare, you won't be the head of Medicare in five years. You just move on to something. And if you drive up budgets and costs, you get fired or your career ends. And if you save money five years down the road or 10 years, it's not a very uh, good proposition for you. It's just not nice because you probably get fired. And then you might look good in 10 years, but that doesn't help you. And so unfortunately there is no like wise council somewhere that says like okay we are truly interested in the long-term outcomes for the american people and for our economics it's more like very tactically driven you know if someone wants 80 billion dollars from me um do i have that money no i don't so regardless what they pitch they can pitch me immortality uh i can't get it done because what am i going to do go to congress and ask them for 80 billion dollars it just will fire me <laughs> so I don't want to be a downer, but these are the reasons why we believe the future of healthcare will be driven by self-payers and by employers who have totally different reasoning here. Um, and they need to, I mean, the most innovative and unfortunately the people who can afford it in the beginning have to finance true innovation. They have to help us get to the point where we have such overwhelming evidence that we can basically force the rest to follow. Uh, because this is not a voluntary thing on the insurance side. They are, they are not going to like it. Yeah, I guess that's kind of sad because whether it's, you know, the, the sound you hear under the hood of your car or the hurricane that's forming in the Atlantic, early prediction and early detection saves us money because it allows us to take preventative steps. And it's really unfortunate that the last place this is getting to is in healthcare when you have a tool that can do it. I guess the question that I have, you know, regarding this, we've talked about COVID, we've talked about cancers, but what other types of diseases leave signatures that are detectable in the blood if you know what they are? So this question has, you know, the answer to that question lies a little bit in the future in a lot of research. Um, what we see is inflammatory conditions like pancreatitis, sigma diverticulitis, and some other conditions actually show up pretty clearly, sometimes more clearly than cancer with slightly different profiles um, because a lot of cells die and they get damaged and we see it on the DNA. So that will be very interesting to see that. There's some early evidence for 
cardiovascular that this is also to some extent showing up. Um, but that's it's too early to say if that's reliable and what the endpoints are. Um, I believe just based on logic that probably you will find most conditions in the body somehow reflected in uh, DNA damage because any kind of bad condition leads to cell death in one form or another. And cell death is always violent. There's always, you know, radical chemistry involved that also damages the DNA. So my suspicion is that over time, the more data we have, the more we see that cell-free DNA investigation will be a very substantial tool uh, with single molecule precision to look across a, a wide range of diseases. Um, but for quantine, I mean, this is, of course, one of, key, one of the key technologies we use but we view ourselves more as a medical intelligence company that uses this tool and builds it out and you know, hopefully stays the leader in that space for a long time by advancing the tool. But we also integrate other tools, um, you know, reaching from other blood tests to protein tests to uh, potentially soon even radiology, because in the end, you want to have multiple data dimensions on the patient and you want everything to be as high resolution as possible. And you want to connect everything with AI and uh, this new type of uh, intelligence expert um, to see patterns that no one could see before on a vastly broader data uh, foundation. Well, Joe Bakhti, thank you so much for your time today. You know, I really, this is really exciting stuff. I really think it's great. The, the thing that I, I really want to see is this kind of technology employed, but as long as it has... Uh, ability to be accessed by everyone, because I really do believe, you know, we, we can save a lot of money by being better at detection. And, uh, you know, I wish you well in what you're doing. And I hope that as we go forward, uh, you keep me posted of any big breakthroughs at the company and uh, other things that we can share with this audience. So thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to reiterate our mission, you know, is to extend the healthy human lifespan by 10 years within the next 10 years. And not just for people who can afford it, but of course for everyone. And that's at the center of, of our kind of plan. We just believe just realistically to get there, you need to get started. And if you wait for Medicare, you are not going to get started. And so I think it's a much faster process to start the sales payers and employers finance more and more insight while you're building up that evidence to really drive towards full reimbursement as quickly as possible and bring this to everyone. Oh, really nice. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks a lot, Kevin. That was uh, very exciting. Yeah, thank you very much, too. And thank you very much to the audience again. Thank you very much for listening. Um, as we go towards 1.5 million downloads uh, in six years, uh, very, very grateful for your continued support and listenership. And it's this is a kind of exciting breakthroughs, like this kind of personal medicine and detection of disease early on that we didn't have five years ago or six years ago when we started the podcast. And I really look forward to the next six years when maybe we'll talk about more detection available to more people leading to better cures. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. 
which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.